as we talk about our Christian liberty, we need to be ones that, yes, we have knowledge, but remember this, that out of sensitivity and love, we don't want to stumble the weaker brother or sister, do we? You know, what we want to do is we want to make sure that people are hearing freely the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is that Jesus came and died for you. He died for every single one of us because of his love for us. Welcome to Under the Fig Tree. Under the Fig Tree is a verse-by-verse study taught by Pastor Jeff Figs of Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We are currently studying through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Jeff. Here is the thing. The brother or sister that knows that the idol is nothing may feel completely free to eat that meat offered to an idol. The idols are nothing. That's the knowledge. They can't contaminate meat. You may think it's no big deal, but Paul writes in verse 7, however, there are some that their conscience says that this is wrong. They say that I can't consciously eat this meat that has been offered to a pagan idol. To me, it's sin, they say. Their conscience being weak is defiled if, if you do that. Verse 12, you wound their weak conscience. Verse 13, you make your brother or sister stumble. And we don't want to do that, do we, as Christians? It won't be the loving thing to do. So Paul now talking about, out of love and sensitivity to the weaker brother or sister, Paul concludes the chapter by saying, I will not eat meat if it makes my brother stumble. Now here's where we, what we need to understand. Then that is that we as believers, as believers, we have the freedom, the liberty that we have in Christ. But here's the thing that, that we as believers have to include, the freedom to not stumble or hurt the weaker brother or sister. There are certain things that we will not do here at Calvary Chapel because it will stumble other people. We can feel like we're free to do that, we have the liberty to do that, but we won't do that. Most people say no problem at all, no big deal at all. But out of sensitivity and love to Christians, we don't want to be involved with that. Or my family, or perhaps, you know, whatever it might be, we want to be careful in this area of Christian liberty. So Paul's stressing here, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So love for the well-being of believers plays a priority in decisions that we make. It's love that edifies. Because of my love for that brother and sister, I'm not going to eat that meat that's been offered to idols. Now, I do want to say something that's very important, that knowledge and love do go together. They're not separate. Knowledge is very important, isn't it? Having a knowledge of truth, having a knowledge of God's Word. And those of you who've been around here long enough, you know that I emphasize that. That's why we study the Scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse from Genesis to Revelation. So you have that knowledge of the truth of God's word, what God's word declares. But along with that knowledge comes love and sensitivity, doesn't it? So knowledge is a a powerful thing. It gives us God's wisdom. It gives us direction. It's important to have that knowledge, but along with that, that love as well. Now, as we talked about with the Corinthians, they were ones that were really puffed up about knowledge, weren't they? 
they were really into man's wisdom and knowledge and philosophy and all this stuff, but they were lacking love. So they needed to have knowledge, that is, truth of God's word, along with love and that love which was going to guide them in the knowledge that they have. And that's the same with you and with me. Because you can have just knowledge and no love, and it can be pretty brutal at times. You can have love with no knowledge, and it's hypocrisy oftentimes. Or it's flaky. You're not moving in truth. And the church can get you know, itself into the trouble when it says, well, we're just going to love the people. We're just going to love people and let them live the way they want, and, and we're not going to stand for truth. They go together, knowledge and truth. So you have knowledge, which is powerful, but it's guided and controlled by the love that we have for one another. And so what we see here is Paul laying out this principle here, and now as Paul continues in this thought, as he's answering their question about Christian liberty, we're going to move into chapter 9 here, and he's going to give an example of his own personal life, because as Paul was traveling as an apostle, he had rights as an apostle that he didn't demand those rights be given to him. He didn't make those demands upon the Corinthian Christians because he didn't want to cause offense to anyone. So now he talks about being an apostle and his rights as an apostle. He's going to show us from his own personal experience how he puts into practice this principle that he just sought to teach us here in chapter 8. So chapter 9 we read as he writes, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are to seal my apostleship in the Lord. So he writes, Am I not an apostle? Now to us it's obvious, isn't it? We look back and we say, yeah, Paul was an apostle, the great apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, look at his missionary journeys, the churches he established. Uh, look at the, the canon of Scripture in the New Testament. Many of them, the books that we have, the epistles that we have, were penned by Paul the apostle. Certainly he was an apostle, no doubt about it. But it wasn't that way in his day. There were some Christians and there were others that would question his apostolic authority. There were false apostles and prophets that were on the scene that would come in and actually plague the church of Corinth. You see that very clearly in 2 Corinthians. And they would say, Paul's not a real apostle. He, he, he isn't really one. You need to look to us. And they would come and undermine Paul's ministry. And so they were questioning some Paul's authority as an apostle. And if Paul was suspect as an apostle, then his teaching would become suspect. So Paul begins to give his, his, his true status as an apostle, he says, am I not free? That is, Paul was under the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, I've seen the Lord Jesus Christ, which was one of the requirements of apostleship in the early church. And then he says, are you not my work in the Lord? The work that Paul had established in Corinth and amongst the believers, there was evidence enough of Paul's apostolic credentials. The Corinthian believers had more reason than most to know that Paul was a genuine apostle because they've seen his work up close. He says, my ministry amongst you, the fruit of the ministry, the fact that you are in the Lord, makes you the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And when he uses that word seal, it's a very important word that he uses. It was a seal that they would use back then that whenever they sent a package or he sent a letter, or a letter, oftentimes it would come in a scroll somehow, and you would roll up that scroll if you wrote something, and you would close that scroll with a seal, with some wax, and you would seal it. 
rulers would have a signet ring that would have uh, their signet on there, and if they made a, a proclamation or a decree, they would seal it with that seal. It meant that it was a real deal. It authenticated that. And so what, that's what Paul is saying here. He was calling the Corinthian Christians his living seal. And he goes on in verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. So Paul now is going to assert his rights as an apostle. It's as if he's a lawyer here arguing a case. This is my defense to those who would cross-examine me. And he's using a couple legal terms here. There are those who would challenge, again, Paul's claim as an apostle. So we read in verse 4. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? As do also the other apostles, the, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So to refrain from working. So Paul establishes his rights in his apostle to the most basic things like food, companionship. Paul had the right to, to marry, to eat and drink, and be supported in ministry. Kind of interesting, isn't it, as you read these verses, that Paul's making reference to the other apostles and their wives traveling with them. And to me, especially, what's kind of interesting is he mentions Cephas or Peter. We do know that Peter was married, don't we? Because in the Gospels accounts, the Synoptic Gospels, we know that Jesus, early in his ministry in Capernaum, up there in the Galilee region, after synagogue, that Jesus came over to Peter's house and healed Peter's mother-in-law. So to have a mother-in-law, you had to be married. So Peter was married, and here Paul makes reference of Peter's wife that traveled with him, and I always kind of wondered what Peter's wife was like. What it must have been like for her. I mean, here she marries this big burly fisherman, there, and she thinks she's going to have this quiet, simple life as he goes out fishing, and it's nestled there in this beautiful place on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee. But here she is. I mean, she has a quiet life. And all of a sudden, he brings home this itinerant preacher from Nazareth. And all chaos breaks loose. And the streets are jam-packed. And everybody coming into her house. And the home jam-packed. And how patient she had to be. And, you know, all of a sudden she finds herself married to the first pope, you know. She had to be an incredibly godly woman. Supported her husband, traveled with him. And church tradition says that she was martyred in front of her husband, Peter. So here, Paul, he mentions, you know, the apostles and how they traveled with their wives who received support from the churches they ministered to. But Paul and Barnabas were unique in this regard, choosing to work and support themselves so that no one could accuse them of preaching for money motives. And you would think that that would make Paul and Barnabas more respected in the sight of the Corinthian Christians, but it made them less respected. Remember, the Corinthians with that Greek mindset of if Paul would have come into town with a large entourage and, you know, prestige and with a name and um, with human wisdom trying to persuade, they would have supported him even more. But because Paul came in, as he said to them, as we read in Chapter 1, as we traveled into chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, he says, you know when I first came to you, that I came to you in much weakness and fear and trembling. And when I came to you, Corinthians, I didn't come with 
persuasive words of human wisdom, but I came determined not to know but one thing, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul came in humility. Paul came with the simple message of the gospel, and, and because Paul would work and he would make tents and he came in humility, the Corinthians would look at him, some of them at least, and say, well, is he really an apostle? I mean, he doesn't really have a, you know, a prestige and all of this, and he doesn't come with human wisdom and all of that, and that's the way they thought. So Paul's, he's talking here to them. He says, what the Lord has done is my seal that truly that the Lord is working through me as an apostle. Verse 7, he says, and as he continues to explain why he has the right to be supportive to those who uh, he ministered to, whoever goes to war is at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock. And even though Paul never did take money or support from the Corinthian believers, he defended his right to do so. And here in verse 7, he compares a minister to a soldier, a vine dresser, and a shepherd. If you join the army, a gun is provided for you. You don't have to go out and buy a gun or whatever. That's provided for you. A farmer is fed by the field that he works in, and a shepherd is supported by the sheep he cares for. So it should not be strange to the Corinthian Christians that Paul has a right to be supported by the people he ministers to. Now, a little side note, just real quick. He mentions Barnabas. Doesn't Barnabas and I have this right? It seems to indicate to me, because we know that when Paul and Barnabas were seeking to set out on that second missionary journey, that they parted ways because there was contention over John Mark that had left them on their first missionary journey. And you read about that in Acts chapter 15. You don't hear about Barnabas in his ministry journey after that. You hear about Paul. So people wondered, was Barnabas uh, continued to be used of the Lord? Uh, was that contention uh, something that lasted throughout Paul's life? I don't think it was. I think as we read in between the lines, Barnabas continued to minister. Matter of fact, there are those who believe that perhaps, perhaps we don't know for sure, that Barnabas was the human instrument that wrote the book of Hebrews. But here Paul's given an indication that Barnabas was still ministering. And also it seems like that they reconciled their relationship because Paul is giving them a thumbs up, and Paul here is mentioning Barnabas. We know that his relationship was reconciled to John Mark because at the end of Paul's life, he would ask for John Mark. He says, send them to me here in this dungeon I'm in in Rome because John Mark is useful to me. But that's a little side note for you who like to think about these things. In verse 8, do I say these things as mere men, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? So we saw in verse 7, Paul given three reasons, secular examples. That some might object to Paul not speaking from divine wisdom. So he turns now to the Old Testament in verse 8 and 9. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox, Deuteronomy chapter 25, while it treads out the grain. So part of the law was that as that ox is laboring for you, that you don't put a muzzle on him, but so the ox can continue to tread out the grain and be strengthened and provided for. You don't do that. And so how much more that if an ox is taken care of, that a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ is taken care of. In verse 10, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope shall be partakers of his hope. So it would be cruel to starve those who are providing and preparing your food to do so would take away all their hope. 
It would make them feel abused and unappreciative and appreciated, that is. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, it is a great thing if we reap your material things. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, and here again is the change, we have not used this right but endured all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So simply this, in these verses of chapter 9, Paul making the case that as an apostle, he had the right to be supported. If you've been blessed and helping your spiritual life, your family changed and blessed, your whole life enriched, how much more Paul says you should not therefore support with material benefits those who helped you in this way. And then Paul says, as we just read, nevertheless, nevertheless, we have not used this right. And I believe he's talking about him and Barnabas. Lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. And here we really see Paul's heart in this, don't we? Paid or not paid, what mattered to him, what was the priority to him, was that the work of the gospel was being done. It was, if it was more effective for the gospel, if Paul received report, support, he would do that. He would receive it. If it was more effective for him, for the gospel, if he should work to support himself, then he would do that. But what mattered was that the gospel would be in no way hindered. And if Paul was willing to deny such an important right for the good of the gospel, then should not also the Christians of Corinth deny their right to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols for the same good. So Paul is saying here, I don't want my needs to be above the needs of the body of Christ. And then Paul adds one more point. We'll end here at verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who minister to holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Should ministers assert or release their rights to be supported? Paul says it depends. As long as the gospel is getting out, that's the priority. Whichever will serve the gospel and the church better. Now, I do know of pastors that they have the conviction that they will work. Sometimes they have to work. Even a few, not many, but I have known a few that even though the church could support them, they have that conviction that they will not take support from the church and that they will continue to work. That's the conviction that they have. But we know that most pastors that are at a church, on staff at a church, um, are supported by the church. Now, when we first started Calvary Chapel here, Greeley, 14 years ago, we didn't take Sue and I any support from the church. We didn't take support from the church for, for years because we wanted to make sure that the needs of the church were met first. So I supported my family by other means to make sure that the needs of the church was met because we started in our home. We started the way that most Calvary chapels start, and that is a little home fellowship. And it started in our home. We outgrew the home, and then we moved to a facility downtown, a small facility, but rent had to be paid. You know, the light bill needed to be paid. We wanted to make sure that we were able to buy chairs and to be able to buy little chairs for the kids and tables and things like that. So that was a priority. That's something that we wanted to make sure took place. And then it was after a few years that we were able to begin to get support from the church and that 
we were ones that were very thankful for that. And so over the years now, we've been able to, I have been, to be here full-time as well as Pastor Jim to be supported by the church. And we're very thankful for that. But I will say this, that I take very seriously as well as Pastor Jim that the support that we get from you and and being here full-time that we should work very hard to earn what it is, that support that, that is given to us. In other words, I believe that a minister should work hard. The qualification of an overseer in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that it's a good work. It's good, but it is work. And what I'm simply saying is to be available, to be here, to be with the sheep, to work hard is what we can in ministering to the people and being available for the people. You see, that's what makes a good shepherd, I believe. David, when he was called to be the king of Israel, where was he? He was out in the field with the sheep, wasn't he? When Samuel the prophet showed up at his father's house saying, I'm here to anoint the new king of Israel. When Moses was called by God to go lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, where was he? He was on the backside of the desert herding sheep. A minister, a shepherd, is going to be with the people, the sheep. He's going to be there. My responsibility is preparing, to teaching God's word, to be praying for you guys, to be counseling, discipling, helping out in very practical ways. And I want to make sure, and it's my prayer, that you guys are the best-fed, best-loved sheep in Greeley. So I personally will not go to the board and say, hey, can I take a whole summer off? a sabbatical, and so I can write a book or I just need to take a break for a while. And I'm not trying to be critical. Okay, hear my heart on this. That's my conviction. That's my conviction that I'm not going to do that, to, to take a whole summer off to travel or to write a book. And I know that some ministers do that. I believe that the pastor needs to be here. There are going to be times that, of course, I'm going to be gone, but it's for a short time. So I want to make sure that we're available, and Pastor Jim feels the same way. We have that same heart, and and matter of fact, that Pastor Jim is here by 6 o'clock in the morning to be able to have that daily grind for men to come in before they go to work and pray with them and to be able to fellowship with them. And guys, take advantage of that, to be able to talk with them, for us to be here and be available. And so I, I want you to know that that we take very seriously and we're very thankful and the responsibilities have been given to us as overseers and as pastors here at Calvary Chapel. So, so here, Paul making the point as we close this morning, the bottom line, ministry isn't about what you can get, it's about what you can give. And the apostle wants him to know that his priority is, is not to be supported, but to minister the gospel. He doesn't want to stumble. He doesn't want to hinder what God wants to do. But our sensitivity and love, even though it was not always convenient for Paul, he says, I continue to, be, to work rather than receive support from you. As we talk about our Christian liberty, we need to be ones that, yes, we have knowledge. But remember this, that our sensitivity and love We don't want to stumble the weaker brother or sister, do we? And he said in chapter 8, verse 11, we don't want to do that for the one that Christ died for. You know, what we want to do is we want to make sure that people are hearing freely the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that is that Jesus came and died for you. He died for every single one of us because of his love for us. And he went to Calvary's cross because that's the only hope that we have of salvation, the only hope that we have of forgiveness of sin. It is the only hope that we have of having right relationship with God. It only comes through Jesus Christ who declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I pray that this morning that you have been free, if anybody that is here this morning who has not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you've been free to hear that. that that you would know that Jesus loves you, he died for you, he's made provision for you in salvation, forgiveness of sin, and reconciliation with the Father. And I pray this morning that you would consider giving your heart to Jesus Christ if you haven't done that. If you're one, that if you were to die today, you're saying, I don't know if I'm a child of God, I don't know if I would go to heaven, you can, out of faith in Jesus Christ with a believing heart, Surrender your heart to him this morning because he is our only hope. That's the message that Paul would preach, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message that we preach this morning. Thank you for joining us on Under the Fig Tree. If you would like a copy of today's study, please call us and ask for the message with today's date. Our phone number is 970-330-1717. That number again, 970 970- Three three zero one seven one seven. If you prefer, you can write us at 2602 West 27th Street, Greeley, Colorado, 80634. You can also visit us online at ccgreeley.com. Under the Fig Tree is brought to you by Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We invite you to join with us for our Sunday morning services at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. and our Wednesday evening service at 7 p.m. Please join with us next time as we continue to study the Bible together on Under the Fig Tree.